And welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And again, you can follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY and on Facebook, Jake Novak, N-O-V-A-K. Hope you'll do that and interact. Challenge. Be polite, but feel, fi- feel free to challenge if you want to and be ready for a response. Um, I want to try to get to three topics in today's edition, which is a little bit ambitious of me. I don't usually get to more than two, but I want to try to get to three topics because, you know, things are jam-packed, especially for American Jews, American Friends of Israel right now. So many, so many issues to really pay attention to. So I want to talk about three things. The first is we've got a real tip-off just in the last few days that proves that just about every anti-Israel, so-called pro-Palestinian protester activist is full of baloney. We got um, another sign uh, on Friday night that the far left is becoming incredibly hostile to anything considered to be pro-Israel or Jewish to the point that somebody very close to the Democratic Party's heart was accosted, basically. And then we found out that her politician parents didn't find it important enough to say anything on her behalf or to clarify the issue. And finally, I want to talk a little bit about something. Uh, Again, you'll hear me say this, and I'll repeat it again when we get to the topic. I am not a rabbi, nor do I play one on the radio. But there was something very, very instructive to our current events in the Haftarah this week uh, that I really want to get to because um, it's one of those things that's been misunderstood, I think, or the full understanding of it has not been understood, even by you know a lot of people who, who are quite knowledgeable. But I think you have to kind of understand today's news to really get this week's Haftarah to its fullest. I can only imagine what other parts of the Torah will learn more as more news events happen over the years. But I want to start with this little tip-off that we have. It's not that little. And it's certainly nothing new to those of us who've been following the anti-Zionist, so-called anti-Zionist. Say so-called because it's really anti-Semitism. And we got another hint of that, more evidence of that this week, and it's happening right now. And the, the reason I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out by telling you something you probably haven't heard, because if you're even following the news relatively closely the last couple of days, you haven't heard this story, most likely. And that is, did you know that there has been a pretty strong anti-Hamas protest movement bubbling up in Gaza right now, among, obviously, Muslims who live in Gaza, who have been protesting against Hamas. Hamas has been violently putting these protests down, most violently on Thursday, but it's been continuing since then. Uh, on Thursday, there was, a vi- there was real, you know, people coming in from Hamas going and beating up some of these protesters, and they're protesting for all the reasons that you would expect them to be protesting against Hamas. That protesting the fact that Hamas is more interested in war and building the tunnels and doing all these things that they do instead of creating an infrastructure, a decent life for the people who live in Gaza, and that they are the reason that Gaza and Palestinians aren't getting anywhere. It's not Israel's fault. It's not the United States' fault. It's not President Trump's fault. They don't get anywhere because their leaders don't want them to get anywhere. Their leaders want to have an all-out war with Israel, and that's all they're interested in doing, and stealing the money for themselves, of course. I shouldn't say they want to have an all-out war. They want other people to do the warring, the fighting, and they stay in a nice hotel in, uh, in, in, in Beirut. Um, 
And so anyway, this has been going on for a few days. Someone even, an anti-Hamas protester, even tried to set himself on fire, or did set himself on fire on, on Friday or Saturday. And, you know, first of all, you probably haven't heard this story. So again, we, we know that the news media in general likes to do stories from the Middle East if, it, if it's a story that involves Israel doing something, doing something apparently bad, or whatever they, however it's judged. So that story just didn't get covered. And, and in this case, I'm not going to chalk it all up to some kind of media conspiracy because there's a lot of news going on right now that I can understand it's not getting a huge amount of play. It should get play, but it's not, I, I can see why it shouldn't get a huge amount of play. Uh, also on Thursday night, after that first violent put-down of the first protest, you had those two rockets fired into central Israel towards Tel Aviv, which is extremely rare, thank goodness. Not that any other part of Israel is any less important, but the heavily populated area that is Tel Aviv and its environs. Now, for those of you know, many of you know that Jerusalem actually is, has a larger population than Tel Aviv, but that's a one-on-one type comparison. Tel Aviv and its suburbs and environs and that central portion of Israel is the most populous part of Israel. So those kinds of missiles, so this is just a, 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 a statement of mine, not on quality here, just on quantity. I don't think the people of Stay Road are any less important than the people of Tel Aviv, but when you fire a rocket into that heavily populated area, the chances of more people getting killed or injured are much higher. So that's a rare event, thankfully, and Hamas is saying it was a mistake. I think that most likely, because the Hamas leaders were meeting with Egyptian envoys at the time of that rocket firing, uh, I think the most likely scenario is that there is a break-off group or a rebel group within Hamas that doesn't want Egypt and the leadership of Hamas coming with any, to any kind of ceasefire agreements or peace agreements with Israel. So they were hoping to start something up. And uh, they got a little bit of what they wanted because, of course, the Israelis retaliated with heavy airstrikes overnight. Uh, it doesn't seem like there were a lot of casualties. I don't even know if we even know one person was killed in those airstrikes um, because they had enough advance warning to get evacuated. The Hamas people did. But there was some damage to their infrastructure for sure. And anyway, so you had that going on as well, and some people even hypothesized that those rockets were fired also because of those anti-Hamas demonstrations earlier in the day. In other words, to kind of get the people of Gaza all backing Hamas because they're trying to start a war. In other words, getting the people of Gaza to say, well, you know, we really are angry at Hamas for being such, you know, for stealing our money and making us economically poor and all that. But now that they've started, you know, now that this war with Israel has started, you know, we've got to back them. Of course, they didn't get what they wanted. The Israelis retaliated, but it seems to have quieted down. And in a a sign of real interest, an really interesting sign is that the next day, you know, Hamas has been staging these riots. Of course, people call it demonstrations. They're not demonstrations. They're riots. They're, in fact, they've been some uh, paramilitary activity at these events. This is every Friday now on the Gaza border. They call it the March of Return. It's just a bunch of riots and, and paramilitary action. They get a lot of themselves killed every week on this. And again, Hamas doesn't care about how many of their own people they kill. That's, that's really not important to them. They try to kill some Israelis, and sometimes they do, or at least wound them. Uh, and that was called off on Friday, which is really, really interesting, which just goes to show to me that Hamas is realizing, the leadership of Hamas is realizing that they may have bitten off more than they can chew with these violent riots. That it may have spawned some new paramilitary groups that are within Hamas or sort of under their umbrella who are now going rogue. So they needed to stop them. But the riots against, or I wouldn't say riots, I think these are, these are violent protests, so I guess you could call them riots too, within Gaza... Protesting Hamas have been going on, and there's been no coverage of it. 
More importantly, there's been no mention of them by all the so-called pro-Palestinian, pro-anti-Zionist. You know, they're just anti-Zionist. They, they're, they're just so, they're just pro-Palestinian. But where are their voices? Where's Roger Waters? Where's Bernie Sanders? Where's Elon Omer? Omer? Where's Rashida Tlaib? Where are they? Where are they to say, hey, the people of Gaza have a right to protest about what government they want. They shouldn't be violently put down or, you know, I'm sure some people were killed by Hamas against their own people because they're protesting them. You know, where's the so-called concern for the Palestinian people? I mean, this is always their justification. They're not anti-Semitic. They're not necessarily even against an existence of Israel. They just want more rights for Palestinians. That's what they say. It's a lie. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. Because now that we see that it's not Israelis harming the Palestinians, it's Hamas against Palestinians, there's no word of protest. Of course, we learned that so many times before. There's been so many Arab-Muslim civil wars since the existence of the State of Israel, and the death toll of Arab and Muslim people in those wars, by a factor of tens of thousands, is much bigger than any amount of casualties Arabs in the region have suffered by the hands of, of Israel, on, on the hands of Israel. The Syrian civil war is, like, what, 500,000, 600,000 people dead? Israelis didn't kill one of them. Where's the protest? I haven't really seen a lot of protests in the United States or in Britain against the Arab-on-Arab violence in Syria. What about Black September? When King Hussein, the late King Hussein of Jordan, kicked out the PLO and kicked out Palestinian groups from Jordan. Some of them. No, no, didn't hear anything about that there either. Uh, there's, a million, there's many examples of this. Many, many examples of this. And this is just the latest example of Palestinian hypocrisy. This is not true that these pro-Palestinian groups, the Roger Waters of the world, the BDS types, they don't care about the Palestinians. I'm sorry, they don't. It's a lie. They just hate the Jews and they just hate Israel. It's, it's a lie. If they cared about the Palestinians, A, they, would, they probably didn't even know about this. I mean, your, your average BDS agitator at whatever university, and that, that's where you know, a lot of them are, probably doesn't even know that there are these anti-Hamas protests going on. They don't care enough to follow the news, you know, follow the local news where they could actually find out what's going on in Gaza. It's just, it's just such a lie. And it should be exposed as a lie, and other than this program and, and, and those like it and, and places, a few places on the internet, it won't be exposed, and that's, that's a shame. That's a shame. And the professional journalists who allow these kinds of anti- Jewish groups to come, or, or leaders to come out and say this kind of stuff, ne will never challenge them on this kind of stuff. And it's a shame. But listen, I, I think that the people, if, if, if these protesters continue to persist against Hamas leadership, I, I wish them luck. I, I, I realize that they could end up being worse, you never know, in the Middle East. But if they're looking for a more democratic, pro-economic development leadership to replace Hamas... Um, then I'm totally all for it. You know, one of the saddest things about Israel is it has disproved this thing that they teach us in school, all the way through school, certainly in university, but even sometimes younger. They teach us this stuff about how crime and violence is all connected to economic poverty. That, too, is a lie, and I don't think that the people necessarily teaching us, us that over the years realize it's a lie. But it is a lie. Poor people are no more likely to come and kill you than rich people. But in Israel, where the Palestinian people can very easily see 
how much more prosperous life is for Jews and even for Arabs in Israel proper, uh, that kind of thing should bring peace, right? You know, ooh, a chance for us to get a job and do this. This is great. No, uh, it, it, unfortunately, it seems to create more jealousy and more of a reason for the corrupt Palestinian leadership to try to tear it all down. So it's a vicious cycle, but at least you can be more informed. Follow along on some Twitter feeds. I've, I've tweeted out some of the people who are tweeting videos of these anti-Hamas protests. I hope that you'll follow them and share them. Again, my Twitter handle is at JakeJakeNY, so please check it out. And that's where you can find that story. Second story I want to talk about tonight. I am moving along here on Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. The second story I want to talk about is this thing that happened to poor old Chelsea Clinton at NYU on Friday night. So, as you know, we had this terrible massacre in New Zealand, in the city of Christchurch, where uh, it appears a white supremacist, I mean, that's the, the, the MO that he's giving himself, went into a mosque and shot up a bunch of people, went to a second mosque and didn't get that far because there was a hero person who fought back. Um, for those of you who, who have been hearing about these mass shooting incidents, of course, they're s- sadly too, uh, too often. The quick point, two quick points I want to make before I get into a deeper point about what happened to Chelsea Clinton. First, first quick point is, you know, they're teaching our kids and they're teaching people in corporate headquarters and stuff like that to basically duck and cover shelter in place when there's these mass shooting incidents. Don't do that. Uh, I have had on a number of programs that I've produced a, a guy named Greg Schaefer, who is an expert former FBI guy, tactical guy, go and run. And if you can't run and you're still cornered, throw chairs, do what you can. Do not cower and hide. That's how you get killed. Um, even the top sharpshooters in the FBI or, or the U.S. military have about a 6% hit rate on moving targets. So you can just imagine with some of these guys who aren't CIA or FBI or whatever, uh, what their hit rate would be. Run, run, run. Do not shelter in place. Do not cower in place. You're waiting to die when you do that. Um, so that's the first point I want to make. Second point I want to make is that, you know, how many times do we have to have this happen now? Our places of worship, whether they're Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, are being targeted. And you've got to have security. And there wasn't any security at these mosques. And I'm really getting sick and tired of, of saying these kinds of things. And I keep hearing people saying, well, it was such a shame if we would have to have a guard at our shul or our church. What's, that's a shame? Do you feel the same way about your, your burglar alarm at home or locking your car door? I mean, this is getting outrageous. If you have a house of worship, if any of you here listening to me are in a position of authority at your synagogue, at your church or your mosque, and you don't have security, preferably armed security, just get it. Get it. This is no longer a joke anymore. This is no longer a case of, well, I wish it were a happy, innocent land where people were being, and, and it would send such a terrible message if we have a guard. It doesn't. It sends a strong message. It means that you care about the lives and the safety of your worshipers. But I want to talk about what happened with Chelsea Clinton. So Chelsea Clinton goes to one of these candlelight vigil type things to memorialize these, these poor people who died in New Zealand. And she's accosted by some student who comes at her and says, you're partially or, or you may be fully responsible for this mass shooting because a few weeks earlier, a few days earlier, you had, Chelsea Clinton had criticized the anti-Semitic comments of Elon Omar and this person who's accosting her saying that promoted Islamophobia and Islamophobia is what started, is, caused this shooting. You're a terrible person. Now, the outrageousness and, out, and, and you know, outrage and total lie of that accosting is bad enough. So in other words, if somebody says something anti-Semitic, you're the bad guy if you point it out. 
which, by the way, is becoming the M.O. of the left a little bit, not only in this case with Chelsea Clinton and any time a bigot from the left is called out, but I'm noticing this, 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 this headline that continues to run, and it's almost a joke. It is a joke. You're hearing this headline, some version of Republicans pounce. So uh, it, it's if it's the mean old Republicans pouncing on or making a point of a terrible mistake that someone else has made. It's the Republicans who are bad because they pointed it out. I mean, this is like the, I guess this is the outgrowth of the participation trophy culture, you know, you're supposed to love all the kids and give them trophies even if they're not really good at sports or whatever it is. Maybe that's what this is coming from, but whatever it's coming from, it's really abhorrent. And so Chelsea Clinton is the bad guy because she called out Elon Omar's anti-Semitism. So it's okay to be a bigot if you are from a minority. I mean, this is, and by the way, this is exactly what the left wants. The left wants a get-out-of-jail-free card, immunity, force field against anybody who's a minority who attacks anybody or says something bigoted against gays or white people or Jews especially, because that to them is, is acceptable. It's only white people and Jews can be considered bigots, I guess. This is what they want. This is, what, this is exactly what they want. They want a different rules for their people. And so someone went there and accosted, you know, Ch- Hillary Clinton, uh, sorry, Chelsea Clinton. And of course, predictably, Chelsea Clinton made some kind of apology statement. There was nothing for her to apologize for. And then we found out that the person who accosted her is, of course, a vicious anti-Israel hate monger who was tweeted in the past about how she wants Israel to be eliminated, has tweeted horrific stuff about French people. I mean, she's just a liar and a hypocrite. She, you know, talking about how words matter and people get hurt, their feelings hurt. She's, you know, this person is, is completely just as bad who went out, you know, who went up against Chelsea Clinton. And, of course, Chelsea gave in. They bend the knee all the time, these, these people. She's weak. But what really is extremely eye-opening and upsetting is that Bill and Hillary Clinton, who both tweeted very quickly their statements of condolence and anger about the New Zealand mass shooting, had nothing to say about their own daughter getting accosted in public. And I know people will say, well, it's not a good look for them. Chelsea's in her 30s and they don't have to defend her all the time. Oh, please. Oh, please. Their daughter was accused of inciting the, the, this mass shooting that they both, Bill and Hillary, said was so terrible. And they've got nothing to say. Forget about tweeting. They could have said something in public. Can't, they can't make a statement in public saying, you know, our daughter was accused of this. We know she's an adult and can speak for herself. But we are offended by this. This is horrible. She had nothing to do with this. And shame on you. Which they would do for almost any other person, no matter how old they were, if, if they were a prominent person. Why haven't Bill and Hillary done this? Again, if you think it's because they don't want to make Chelsea embarrassed, I think you're being really naive. Hillary Clinton is still considering running for president. Now, I know she said to a News 12 reporter a couple weeks ago that she's not running, but I think she was talking in the present tense. In other words, she wasn't saying, I'm not running at all in 2020. Just at this moment, I'm not running. I think that's what she said. And, there, and I have some backup on that because Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, who has a lot of contacts within the Clinton team, the Hillary Clinton team, immediately had a story or, or some reports out about how Hillary was backtracking on that. So, of course, we knew that. I wasn't surprised to hear about her backtracking. But I think she's still considering running, and I really think that now, because otherwise I think she would have defended Chelsea much quicker. But she's worried about the far left wing of the party, of the Democratic Party, which is gaining in strength and will be much more prominent in the primaries than they will be in the general election. And she doesn't want to hurt their feelings either. She wants the Elon Omar vote. She wants those people who, who are energized by Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib 
and these other, you know, far left hate mongers who have come into the party and seem to have energized somebody. I don't know. We'll see how energized they are when the primaries come around. I don't know. By the way, all three of them are kind of creations of Bernie Sanders, who you may have heard in past editions of Novak Now is really, you know, he, he's, a, he's a destroyer. He doesn't want to be president, friends. I know he's running. He does not want to be president. He just wants to destroy. He wants to destroy the country in its unity. He wants to destroy the Democratic Party. And he's doing a pretty good job of it. But anyway, I, I just find it appalling that Bill and Hillary won't tweet out anything or say anything in response to what happened to their daughter. She was the number one trending thing on Twitter. It wasn't like just as a little family thing no one ever heard about. This accosting of Chelsea Clinton on Friday night really picked up a lot of attention. And nothing from her loving parents. You know, there's something about politicians and family that you should all know. Politicians, especially career politicians, always choose politics over family. Simply by running for office. I mean, imagine you have young children, you've decided to run for office, which makes them targets, which, which, which it, it threatens their safety. You've decided it's more important that you run because the world needs you. It doesn't need you, okay? There's always somebody else and somebody better who could run the country or run a, a state or a, governor, a governor's house or whatever, a mansion or whatever you want to call it. So that to me was just another outrage, more politics as usual, but also the unusual aspect of a really far left movement running within the Democratic Party now that's looking to eat its own, looking to accuse somebody like Chelsea Clinton, who was simply calling out the bigotry of Elon Omar and try to put this massacre in New Zealand on her shoulders. I mean, how outrageous. And just to make it more outrageous, her own darn parents, who have millions of followers, wouldn't say a word about it because they're afraid because Hillary wants to run again. <laughs> That's why. God, I just... I mean, the amount of therapy that the children of politicians must go through must be in the millions of dollars per head. I mean, really. It's really outrageous. The third thing I want to talk about today on Novak Now, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, is, again, uh, my, my, my standard disclaimer. I've only had to use it a few times, but I've got to use it again today. I am not a rabbi, and I'm not trying to play one on the radio or on television. But, 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 the Haftarah from this past Shabbat, the story of King Shaul, King Saul, and his inability or decision not to kill all the Amalekites and their livestock as God had commanded, to me has always been, as it is for a lot of people, you know, it's a little bit rough to swallow those verses where, you know, Samuel tells King Saul he's got to kill the children too, and the livestock, I mean, wow, I mean, that's, that's a big one, right, for a lot of people, and, and understandably so. But again, we're not talking about policy, we're not talking about human-on-human -human decisions here. According to the Torah, this is God's command. So it's not really up for debate. However, if Saul had wanted to debate, we certainly have an example in the Torah of someone who did. Right? Remember when God tells Abraham, Abraham that he's going to destroy Saddam and, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Amorah. He's, you know, Abraham tries to plead for the lives of the people. You know, we, we spare them if there's 50 or 30 or down to, to or even one good person. Yeah. And, and, and God finally gives in and, of course, finds that there aren't enough righteous people in those, in those cities and destroys them anyway. But at least Abraham gives it a shot. And, of course, the rabbis in the Talmud do a, a good comparison study between Abraham and Noah. Right? God tells Noah he's destroying the whole darn world. And Noah's like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, Noah gets a bad rap uh, on that one compared to Abraham because, you know, Noah's a good guy, but, you know, he didn't even bother to debate for the saving of the entire world. And Abraham goes, you know, to the mat for just two cities. 
But another person that we forget about is Saul. Saul doesn't do any pleading with God. Saul isn't like, oh man, you want me to kill the children too? So, I mean, you know, he doesn't say a thing. No, okay, I'm up for it. But we know that Saul isn't going to follow it. He's always kind of planning not to do what he's been commanded to do. But unlike Abraham, he doesn't protest it in the beginning. So that is our first hint that Saul's not looking to do this, this, this merciful act of not killing the children and the livestock out of any goodness of his own heart. Because if he had goodness of, uh, if he had goodness in his heart and didn't want to do it, really for, for idealistic reasons, he would have protested to Samuel or God himself, right? He doesn't do that. And of course, King Saul doesn't do it. And as we have learned from generation to generation in our Jewish tradition, it's all about, we're told that Saul kind of wanted to do this because he wanted to make himself a little bit more powerful. In fact, he doesn't even kill the king of the Amalekites, right? He kind of keeps him uh, as probably like a spoil of war. And he wants the livestock also as a spoil of war. And then the fact that he doesn't kill the children, we're, we're not really told the reason why, but most rabbis take it to believe like, oh yeah, Saul had some mercy on them. No, he didn't have mercy on them. If he had mercy on them, he would have said something to God at the time when he was commanded to do it. So what does this have to do with today's sensibilities and what we kind of know now? Because this is why this Haftarah really hit me. Again, I'm not a rabbi. I'm playing one and I'm not playing one on the radio. So I'm not just doing this for a sermon purpose. To me, Saul is so much like today's virtue signaling politicians. You know, the ones who tell us that the environment is going to go kaput in 12 years. You know, the ones who tell us we have to have open borders. You know, the ones who tell us that, that, that the adults, whoever the heck they are, bringing children across the border should never be separated from the children, even though 33% of the time they're human traffickers and pimps. No, 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 we can't do that. We're told it's out of their principle. They're principled. They're doing it out of the goodness of their own hearts. Okay, politicians don't do that. And King Saul is a politician. The reason why he doesn't kill the children, and the reason why he spares the king, and the reason why he keeps the livestock is for his own self-aggrandizement. And how do we know that? Because take a look at what it says in the Haftarah. What does Saul do in the, in the verses before Samuel comes and confronts him? He builds a monument to himself. And today we might say he, make the fake, he made a fake book, Facebook post or Twitter tweet to talk about how great he was. Like, I spared the children of Amalek. I spared the animals. I spared their king. I am a great king. I have a great heart. Um, you know, love me, King Saul. Vote for me. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't have to worry about getting voted for. But he's looking for that kind of self-virtue. He's looking to show everyone how great he is. And of course, he doesn't try to pull that fast one so much on God. He tries to pull it a little bit on Samuel and says, oh, I did what God told me. I mean, it's such a bad lie. Uh, because Samuel can literally hear the braying of the goats and the, and the sheep or whatever. So he's saying, you know, obviously you didn't do what God told you to do. But we see this in our politicians today, and I've never understood that Haftarah better than I did. I, I feel like I had a good handle on it over the years, but I have an even better handle yesterday because I was just thinking about all the politicians from both parties, by the way, because now you've got 12 Republicans in the Senate who say they voted against President Trump's national emergency declaration out of the principle of not wanting presidents to have these national emergencies. Meanwhile, none of them ever voted against Obama's national emergencies. None of them ever demanded that, even in the years when the, Demo- when the Republicans had control of, of both houses of Congress. So, you know, these virtue-signaling politicians are just like Saul. Saul trying to make himself into a different kind of king because he was made king because he was kind of a, you know, he was a military butcher. He was a, he was a killer as a general, and that's how he be- got the, the love of the people because that's what they needed at the time. 
And then you have King Saul now trying to pretend that he's Mr. Mr. Compassionate. If he'd been compassionate, he would have argued with God beforehand about it, like Abraham did. Folks, just don't believe that politicians are principled. They almost never are. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'll speak to you again next week.